0: the best laid plans of mice and men, so we're a couple minutes late to start, and every minute is precious because my time is a little bit abbreviated at this uh, particular meeting. But my name is Howard Peth, and they asked me to come because I wrote a book on contemplative prayer that came out just last December. And you who are members of the ASI are going to get a free copy of that. You'll see an envelope, and inside is a cover letter by the president, Frank Fournier, of ASI. And you'll get a copy of my book called uh, The Dangers of Contemplative Prayer. And you'll also get a copy of this month's ministry magazine, which is for pastors And there's one other thing I don't want you to forget and go off, uh, leaving without it, is a four-page handout, which has some other information that I'd like to put into your hands that's not in my book. So, uh, pick up the packet and the handouts. And there's one other thing that uh, one of the exhibits downstairs has. It's right near the front when you enter any of those doors and I think the exhibit is for a a ministry called the Covenant. But the Covenant is making a DVD of this particular issue Uh, and the DVD will be called The Shaking and you can pick up a free sample Uh, since they didn't finish all of that work. They give you a a brief taste of what this will be like uh, later when it comes out in the fall. So if you can pick up those things you'll go home uh, loaded and informed, certainly about contemplative prayer. I just ran downstairs to see if some technical person could know how to uh, dim the lights a little bit. We don't have to turn them out completely, but It's rather bright, uh, almost like daylight with all these lights, and if someone comes along and dims the lights, you'll know that we got results on our request. But let's go ahead now, without uh, further ado. I might say that uh, I'm going to talk rather fast, because usually when I give a presentation on this, it's in three parts. Maybe a Friday night and then a Sabbath, have two more parts. Altogether, they take uh, just a little less than four hours, about an hour and some for each of those. And today, I only have an hour and 15 minutes. So uh, if you'll excuse me, I'll I'll try to talk fast enough because you folks are spending time and money to come here, and I want to give you as much information as I can. So is that okay? Today we want to turn the spotlight on contemplative prayer. And I'd like to have a word of prayer with the Lord. Uh, We can have, yeah, oh, that's great. I'm I'm glad, that looks pretty good, doesn't it? Thank you very much. I want to ask the Lord to be with us as we go ahead. So you can bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth, your blessing, your church. And we pray that you will help us to learn our lessons well in this regard so that we, in turn, can teach others. We love your truth, and we pray that you'll be with us, present by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, God warns in the last book of the Bible that the devil has come down to us in great wrath. Why? Because he knows he has but a short time. And I believe that the devil is pulling out all the stops in these last days because he knows that he has uh, but a short time. Paul warns, he says, and this is a powerful verse that's very pertinent. The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of who? Devils, Devils, believe it or not. Contemplative prayer is really a clear and a present danger because if you'll remember, the devil's target has always been our mind. He reached the mind of Eve in the Garden of Eden and now he's got a method perfected where he can reach the mind of just about everyone in the world in these last days. So that's uh, something really to think about. Our minds are the devil's target. But the church is becoming awakened to this threat, and uh, the first shot across the bow was by our new president. Just two years ago, he was inaugurated at uh, the general conference, and in that long, inaugural address toward the end he saved these words for the end which i think is uh, a good place to help us remember them he said stay away from non-biblical spiritual disciplines of spiritual formation that are rooted in mysticism such as contemplative prayer or centering prayer and the emerging church movement in which they are promoted so he gave that warning And my publisher asked me if I would write this book last year, and I did. It's called The Dangers of Contemplative Prayer. You'll get a copy of that. It was published by Pacific Press, and it was approved by our Biblical Research Institute. And this very month of August 2012, that entire issue of this magazine for pastors called Ministry is devoted to this topic of spiritual formation. There's a great editorial by the editor, Derek Morris, who is even present in this audience today. He was misled into this some years ago, 20 or some years ago, before most people recognized the the dangers. But he's come out of it now. and Amen is right. We can all say amen to that. He's come out of it, and he wrote a powerful uh, editorial in this magazine. And he's a good witness to help maybe other pastors who have been misled into this. But uh, also Mark Finley wrote a, oh, four or five page uh, incisive article on this, plus other ones. Those are all in the issue that you will receive. 3ABN is a powerful uh, outreach. And on Thursday nights, they have an interview program. Tonight, they're going to tape right here in Cincinnati, a program two hours long dealing with this problem of uh, contemplative prayer. And you can see the list of names there. uh, Presidents of the conference, the North American division, and so forth, of the ASI, and so forth. So, Uh, you probably won't be uh, allowed in there because they want everything quiet when they're taping. I wouldn't even get in, so uh, you can see it. I think they're going to run it again on Sunday, for instance. Now we want to see what contemplative prayer is because it's new to most people and how it really works. Well, you could define it maybe in a single word like uh, spiritualism which God's word condemns very strongly. Another possible definition might be mysticism, which was also condemned. Now, we know what spiritualism is, but some of us might not be clear on mysticism. So the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines that as uh, direct communion with the ultimate reality or with God and so forth. It's a direct knowledge of God uh, in a subjective way. Subjective means personal. You see, the mystic doesn't like to get his knowledge secondhand, like reading from a sacred text like the Bible or listening to an inspired sermon from somebody else. No, he'll have none of that. Instead, the Hindu guru, the Buddhist priest, the African witch doctor, Indian medicine man, spiritualistic medium, new age channeler, or professional psychic all believe that they've been blessed with the gift of direct personal knowledge with the invisible supernatural world of all-knowing spirits. And right along with all those mystics of the occult the innocent Christian folks who is misled to indulge in contemplative prayer also communicates directly with the mystical forbidden world of spirits who will reply, they honestly will reply to him or her personally. What's not realized, though, is the voice of, uh, that they think is God's angel is one of Satan's fallen angels, a devil. You see, if Satan can deceive, seduce, and convert a real Christian into becoming a mystic who is so addicted to contemplative prayer that he longs to listen directly to spirit voices becoming, knowingly or unknowingly, a spiritualist, then the devil really has got him. But you might ask, and a lot of people wonder, uh, I'll tell you that what you have to do to go into contemplative prayer They tell you, you have to empty your mind. You have to have a mental void. But you say, how how can I stop thinking? My mind is always going even when I'm trying to fall asleep. Well, the Hindus discovered the secret to this thousands of years ago with a device they called the mantra. A mantra is a syllable or a word or a brief phrase that you repeat when an intruding thought comes along. So you're trying to empty your mind. So if some stray thought enters or a worry or concern, you say your mantra, which is like a prayer word. You could say, Jesus, a stray thought. You you knock it down with this mantra. It's helpful to understand the correct definition. It really comes from the Sanskrit language of Hinduism. Uh, The first syllable, man, means to think, and tra means to be liberated from. So it literally means to escape from thought. And here, this Catholic monk uh, explains it more. He says, Listen to the mantra as you say it, gently but repeatedly. If thoughts or images come, these are distractions at the time of meditation. So simply return to saying your word, ignore the distraction. And the way to ignore it is to say your mantra. Return, they say, to, they encourage you, return to meditation each morning and evening for between 20 and 30 minutes. That's the process that you follow. Henri Nguyen, we're going to talk more about him, but he follows, uh, even though he's a Catholic priest, he follows the ancient Hindu masters. And he says this, the quiet repetition of a single word can help us to descend from the mind into the heart. And this way of simple prayer opens us to God's active presence. That's what they promise you. You can talk to God directly. So the testimony is quite uniform on the use of mantras or so-called sacred words. They're an essential part of contemplative prayer, and so is repetition, Boy, talk about repetition, folks. Uh, When they say repetition, they really mean repetition. For example, there's a short prayer called the Jesus Prayer that you may have heard, like, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Well, they will have youth groups that come to learn about contemplative prayer uh, say that prayer for 10 minutes or more, over and over, just chanting that Jesus prayer uh, for a long time. And two co-authors of a book called The Lost Virtue of Happiness say, we recommend that you begin by saying the Jesus prayer about 300 times a day. Wow. When you first awaken, they say, say the Jesus prayer 20 to 30 times, even while doing more focused things like working during the day. It allows God to be on the boundaries of your mind. Now, regarding repetition, Christian author, now, he doesn't like contemplative prayer. He's a Christian author who's warning about this, and he says, I've been to the country of Myanmar, which used to be called Burma, twice, and on both occasions I observed and videotaped both Catholics and Buddhists practicing repetitive prayer. And by the way, he says, in both cases, they were chanting these prayers over and over again while counting beads. Yes, he says, Catholics and Buddhists both have a rosary technique to keep track of how many times they've chanted a prayer. But is there, after all, a right way and a wrong way to pray? Well, Jesus called our attention to a wrong way when he said, but when you pray do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. You think he knew what was going on in India and China where the Hindus and Buddhists were doing that? But he says, don't you do it. Jesus' explicit words, I think, against repetition should settle the manner for us. Amen? Amen. Now, another thing they do, the teachers and promoters, they deceptively switch Labels. Every once in a while they've got a new name for the same old thing. And that's a major part of uh, their strategy to confuse Christian seekers through a confusion of terms. And Satan in the first place uses such innocent sounding terms like prayer, contemplative prayer. Nothing wrong with prayer, right? It's a good thing and we're encouraged to do it. But Satan craftily and cunningly changes uh, these like mantra, uh, they won't tell you that it's a Hindu word from Sanskrit. They'll say just it's a, it's a prayer word or a sacred word like Jesus, you can say, to uh, keep your mind free. Or contemplative prayer, that's the title that's used for hundreds of years. Now they're calling it sometimes uh, centering prayer or listening prayer. Or take the word meditation, for instance. In the Western world, to meditate means to think deeply about something, turning it over slowly and carefully in your mind. But in the pagan east of Hinduism and Buddhism, it simply means to empty the mind, opening it to mystical experiences with the spirit world. So what we're dealing with, really, is ancient sorcery. It's cleverly dressed up in Christian terminology to deceive us. Now the silence, this is the center stage of this whole deceptive drama, the silence. Basic to this teaching is the unbiblical and misleading notion that true prayer is silent. It's beyond words, it's even beyond thought. So they want you to banish every thought from your mind. William Johnston, he's a Jesuit priest and a Zen Buddhist uh, master, he describes what the silence is really like and this is a very good definition of it he says when one enters the deeper layers of contemplative prayer one sooner or later experiences the void the emptiness the nothingness the profound mystical silence and absence of thought and former priest Brennan Manning leads people into the silence too He has uh, some ironic advice here. Listen to what he says. He says, the first step in faith is to stop thinking about God at the time of prayer. But isn't the time of prayer when it's most natural to think about God? I would say so, too. Thomas Keating is another leader in this field. He's a Catholic monk. He says, as you go down deeper, you may reach a place where the sacred word disappears altogether and there are no thoughts. This is often experienced as a suspension of consciousness, a space. Now, Keating calls this a space where it's a suspension of consciousness as if you're unconscious. Most people would call that a trance, and they do call it that. In fact, uh, Anybody here want to go into a trance or be hypnotized? I don't think we would accept uh, that offer, would we? Why lose control of your mind? But Catholic priest uh, Richard, or, or John Dreher, I'll tell you that a lot of these people who teach it are Roman Catholics. Uh, Thomas Keating we just mentioned, for instance. But this man has investigated it, and he doesn't like it. He's warned us in uh, Internet articles and so forth. He studied it in depth for years and has sounded many warnings. His careful assessment leads him to this conclusion, and here's what he says. Centering prayer is essentially a form of self-hypnosis. The effects of a hypnotic-like state uh, are very clear. Concentration on one thing disengagement from other stimuli, a high degree of openness to suggestion, that's what the devil wants. He wants you to be open to his suggestions and so forth. It's a physical condition, but it's in our mind. Dreyer continues, he says, after reading a published description of Centering Prayer, a psychology professor said, your question is, is this hypnosis? And he says, sure it is, without question. He said the hypnotic state can be verified physiologically by the drop in blood pressure, the respiratory rate, and so forth. Well, he continues, Keating, this man we mentioned a minute ago, he relates that when they began doing centering prayer workshops in the guest house where the monks uh, have their monastery, Some of the monks and guests complained that it was spooky seeing people walking around the guest house like zombies. They recognized the symptoms but uh, couldn't diagnose the illness. Well, the illness is contemplative prayer. This lady, Jacqueline Small, is a therapist, so she's a professional, uh, but she also is a new ager, so she likes this stuff. She uh, admits the hypnotic effect of the silence. She also is a guilty of falsely calling it Christian because it's not Christian at all. But she says it's a form of Christian meditation. Its practitioners are trained to focus on an inner symbol, that's the mantra, that quiets the mind. And when practitioners become skilled in this method of med- meditation, they undergo a deep trance similar to auto or self-hypnosis. And she should know. Now let's uh, go on. We know a little bit about what it is and how it works, but where did it come from? Uh, What are its roots and sources? And are those roots and sources Christian? Because they'll tell you, uh, if you were a little bit uh, cautious, you'd say, "Oh." I'm willing to listen to you, but is this thing really Christian? And they'll always say, Absolutely. You can put your mind to rest on that. It certainly is, but that's a lie. The evidence is very much against calling contemplate Christian and very much in favor of recognizing it as a mystical pagan intruder from ancient Eastern religions, as we'll see. Before we go into those Eastern religions, though, I'd like to show that that it has deep roots in the Roman Catholic Church. And I'll give you five examples of that. If we had time, we could give you more. But uh, let's first look at the Desert Fathers, who were hermits or monks who lived in the uh, Egyptian desert near Alexandria. Saint Anthony was their leader there back in the fourth and fifth centuries. They named the city in Texas, San Antonio, after him. And the mystic contemplative movement traces its roots back to those monks who promoted the mantra as a prayer tool. But where did they learn it? They didn't make it up or invent it. Uh, One proponent, an expert of this, who promotes uh, Eastern style. He says the Desert Fathers from the early centuries of the Catholic Church practiced contemplative prayer. He states that the mystical practices of these desert monks strongly resembled, and it's a matter of record, he's right, that the mystical practices uh, that they used resembled their Hindu and Buddhist brethren, several kingdoms to the east. Now, let's fast forward from the Desert Fathers a thousand years to, well, when Martin Luther lived. Ignatius Loyola was a contemporary with Martin Luther, except that Martin Luther believed in the Bible and the Bible only. And Ignatius Loyola, who had two claims to fame, one was that he was the founder of the Jesuit order, the Society of Jesus, they call it, the Jesuits, which is an army of uh, priests. And he also, the second claim to fame is he wrote the book on spiritual formation in 1548. And unlike Martin Luther, uh, notice, uh, it says he was a a mystical writer. And they don't, shy away from admitting this, they're proud of it. Got it right on the cover of this book and it's said in many other places I could show you. Uh, He was an absolute uh, mystic. His book, which was called Spiritual Exercises, provided, and it still provides to this day, specifications for the mental and spiritual conditioning of his Catholic Jesuit priests as they go through seminary training. But there's an interesting publishing report that tells us that beginning in the 1980s, our era, Protestants have had a growing interest in his book, Spiritual Exercises. There are recent, as late as 2006, adaptations that are specific to Protestants that emphasize these exercises as a school of contemplative prayer. And so Protestants are beginning to uh, take up his... 500 year old book but let's move ahead 500 more years to our day and there's another it's a Catholic monk named Thomas Merton he had a strong influence uh, uh, in this field Christian writer and researcher Ray Youngin tells us what Martin Luther King was to the civil rights movement And what Henry Ford was to the automobile, Thomas Merton was to contemplative prayer. Merton took it out of its monastery and nunnery setting and made it available to and popular with the masses, at least the masses in the Catholic Church. Thomas Merton, he says, has influenced the Christian mystical movement more than any other person of recent decades. Merton wrote a number of books one of which was called no coincidence it was contemplative prayer. But uh, notice at the bottom it's rather small print for you to see this perhaps but there was an introduction in that book written by none other than Thich Nhat Hanh. That name doesn't mean anything to you and me probably but if we were Buddhists Boy, we'd recognize it instantly, because he was like the, uh, a great teacher, like the Billy Graham, almost, of the Buddhist uh, religion. And he liked Merton's book so much that he says, I want to write the introduction for it, and he did. Uh, Merton went to Asia a number of trips, and once he was so thrilled, absolutely thrilled, that he could have a private audience with the Dalai Lama. There's a young picture of the Dalai Lama. This is a biography of Thomas Merton, and notice the author of that uh, story of his life calls it Merton and Buddhism. I mention this because we're going to see that uh, this thing has roots not only in the Catholic Church, he was a very famous and honored Catholic monk, but he was influenced deeply by these Eastern religions. Thomas Keating, we mentioned already, he's advanced in years now, he's 89 years old, but he's still uh, surprisingly active. He wrote a book, several books, in fact, on this, and one of them he called the same title as the other, Contemplative Prayer. He says it's to help you uh, open up to divine union. And two other words there are very misleading. He calls it traditional, he calls it Christian, It's certainly not traditional in the Catholic, uh, excuse me, in the Christian church. And it's not Christian at all. Keating uh, liked to introduce this new term. He likes to call it uh, centering prayer. At the bottom there, I'm just pointing out that uh, this book is a compilation of three of his books within one cover. And uh, so you get three in one there. But he calls it centering prayer. He also calls it Christian again. And that's very misleading to the book buyer, because it's not true. This is a set of uh, training DVDs where you can take it home and learn how to do this on your own, centering prayer. And Keating travels at times, tirelessly conducting uh, seminars and retreats. Uh, Maybe he slowed down a little bit. But uh, Newsweek magazine reported that in 1991... He taught 31,000 people how to listen to God. And here he is in one of his uh, seminars. Now, another big gun in this uh, area is a priest called Henri Nouwen. He has a a name. uh, He was born in Holland, but he lived most of his life and worked in the United States Here it shows him uh, celebrating the Mass, but he really didn't work as a priest very much. In fact, he was very famous and well-known as a writer an author and professor. He taught at the University of Notre Dame and Harvard and Yale. Those are big-name institutions. And many pastors and professors are attracted to his deep thinking. In 1994, they did a survey. Someone did a survey of over 3,000 Protestant church leaders. They said, who would you rank uh, others who have influenced you? And second only to Billy Graham was uh, Henri Nouwen. One of his many books, uh, it's called In the Name of Jesus, has this subtitle, Reflections on Christian Leadership because he wrote it for pastors, for leaders in the church, and many Protestant uh, pastors bought it. Here in that book, he devotes an entire chapter to contemplative prayer, and he says this Through the discipline of contemplative prayer, Christian leaders have to learn to listen to the voice of love. For Christian leadership to be truly fruitful in the future, a movement from the moral to the mystical. Is required. Uh, it's too bad he's uh, promoting the mystical, but it's even worse that he wants to maybe eliminate the moral aspect of our religion. So we've seen that there are deep roots in the Roman Catholic Church, but there are even earlier roots in those ancient Eastern religions of Hinduism and Buddhism. And the truth of the matter is that Hinduism and Buddhism differ at an absolutely basic level from Christianity, and they differ even with each other. On the one hand, Hinduism is decidedly polytheistic. They have countless gods and goddesses, millions for almost everything in nature. Though ironically enough, Hindus are also strongly monistic or pantheistic. We're gonna talk about those terms a little bit later, but what they mean is that you believe that all is one ultimate reality or essence or God that they call Brahman. Now Buddhism, on the other hand, is basically atheistic. We think it's a religion, but it's almost an atheistic religion because it denies and rejects the notion of a personal God or creator. Yet it believes and teaches a philosophy that all is one, again, including whatever concept of a supreme being one may have. So like Buddhism, it's also monistic and pantheistic. Thus, Hinduism and Buddhism each proclaim a worldview that's worlds apart from Christianity. So it's really a marvel And a great irony that the very latest form of this supposedly Christian prayer was born long ago and far away in the pagan lands of the mystic Far East, India, Tibet, China, and later Japan. Let me give you a few examples of how uh, Eastern this uh, supposedly Christian prayer is. Here, Thomas Keating urges, he says, we shouldn't hesitate to take the fruit of this age-old wisdom of the East and capture it for Christ. Indeed, those of us who are in the ministry should make the necessary effort to acquaint ourselves with as many of these Eastern techniques as possible. And he adds, many Christians who take their prayer life seriously have been greatly helped by yoga, Zen, which is a form of Buddhism, transcendental meditation, and similar Eastern practices. And Keating gives this revealing advice to Christian pastors. He says, in order to guide persons having this experience of divine oneness, Christian spiritual directors may need to dialogue with Eastern teachers in order to get a fuller understanding. Now, what about on Nawan? He was chosen to write the foreword for a fellow monk's uh, book. Uh, Thomas Ryan wrote a book called Disciplines for Christian Living. And in that foreword that he wrote, Nowen reveals his own love for Eastern religions as he pays this tribute. He says, the author, Ryan, shows a wonderful openness to the gifts of Buddhism, Hinduism, and Muslim religion. He discovers the great wisdom of the spiritual life for the Christian. And Ryan, the author, went to India to learn from spiritual traditions other than his own, and he brought home many treasures and offers them to us in the book. Thomas Merton himself goes so far as to say, I believe that openness to Buddhism, to Hinduism, and those great Asian traditions, we stand a wonderful chance by learning more of them we can learn more about the potentiality of our own christian traditions well i don't believe that at all virtually all of these uh, spiritual leaders that foster we're going to mention richard foster he's a very influential leader here he praises so many of these people in his books all of those i've mentioned already and others and all of those leaders that he is so praiseworthy of, have strong leanings toward Eastern mysticism. But uh, Thomas Merton, let's take him as an example, he unashamedly admits, he says, I find no contradiction between Buddhism and Christianity. He says, I personally intend to become as good a Buddhist as I can. Wow. He doesn't say I want to be the best Christian I can. And here's another fact that is, I think, a powerful one, that contemplative prayer and transcendental meditation, which was so popular a decade or two ago, are mystical twins. The the contemplative prayer was derived from Hinduism and Buddhism seems so obvious to me that I need no further proof, at least, but don't take my word for it. Because when, in a court of law, Cool heads assessed all the facts in a case involving the Eastern mystical practice of transcendental meditation. The judges decided twice because they appealed it again and they decided the same way. They decided the same way I would have and I hope the same way you would have. It's a binding legal decision. Courts in the United States have legally ruled that transcendental meditation is not a secular discipline. It is, in their words, Hindu religion. Therefore, it cannot be taught in the public schools, as they were trying to do, without violating the separation of church and state. Now, that decision was both wise and just because it was inspired by Hinduism and is permeated by that religion in almost every detail. But what about contemplative prayer? Well, for those who have examined it, contemplative prayer is so close to transcendental meditation as to be almost identical. As a matter of cold, hard fact, one practitioner who is uh, very knowledgeable in both of these mystic methods, he's a Catholic priest named Finbar Flanagan. Pretty good name, huh? Uh, But he doesn't like this, and he's warning us about it. He says, Centering Prayer is transcendental meditation masquerading in a Christian dress. And further, he goes on in that same article. The title of his article was Centering Prayer, Transcendental Meditation for the Christian Market. That's a telling word because he's letting us know that this is something that they're trying to sell, they're trying to peddle this uh, Eastern religion. He says, as an ex-transcendental meditation teacher, I find it hard to see any differences between centering prayer and transcendental meditation. That's a sentiment shared by many with the same knowledge. The similarities are very striking between the two. And in my book, I even have a little chart where you can see uh, they line up exactly with each other. So we've seen that uh, it has roots in both of those. But what about modern sources in the Protestant religions? You know, strong resistance remained. They got it into the, uh, well, Satan can say to himself, I got it into Hinduism, I got it into Buddhism. I got it pretty early into the Catholic Church. It's been there for centuries. But strong resistance remained to mystical experiences that God condemns. The Protestant reformers like Luther, Calvin, Wesley, they recognized the danger and would have nothing to do with it. So promoters of contemplative prayer had a problem. How can it infiltrate the Protestant churches, and as fate would have it, they found the solution they needed in a young man named Richard Foster. That's an older picture of him, but he wrote a book in 1978 called Celebration of Discipline. And at the bottom there, it says that the international bestseller, because they translated it into other languages and it sold all over the world in the 30 plus years since that book was published it has sold over one million copies which is very good for any religious book really in the year 2000 it was honored by the influential magazine christianity today which named it one of the top 10 books of the century not of the year but of the whole century that was in the millennial year of 2000 But I need to mention, for your benefit, Richard Foster and the Quaker religion. Uh, We all know uh, Quaker Oats as a nutritious cereal. And I've always had a good image in my mind of the Quaker religion. They're uh, peaceful, uh, God-fearing people, and so forth. Most of you have the same uh, understanding that I've had. But in my research, I learned something that was uh, quite almost the opposite. Richard's foster as a writer and speaker to promote contemplative prayer must have seemed easy and natural to him. Almost as if he was destined by fate. It's his calling in life because he is a Quaker today and he was born and raised in a Quaker home. He's devoted his life to that religion. If you look on the Quaker uh, website, the main one, they'll say, uh, and I didn't leave it in here, but it says the most famous Quaker uh, in the world today probably is Richard J. Foster. And later in life, as he grew older, he hungered for outside reading, and he confesses that he immersed himself very deeply and almost exclusively in Catholic mystical writers. And these two influences in his life have a profound effect. We can all understand the effect of the Catholic mystics, for it shows itself so strongly in all of his later work. But let me share a little about the Quaker religion, which is so very different from that of most Christian churches. Some general differences, like uh, they don't celebrate the Lord's Supper at all. They don't practice any mode of water baptism. And most of their churches have no professional clergy. Thus, it seems that are Quakers, Christian, is still an open question. Well, one authoritative source says, although outsiders like myself usually regard the movement as a Christian denomination, not all Quakers themselves see themselves as Christians. Some regard themselves as members of a universal religion, that for historical reasons, not theological, but historical reasons, yes, it has some Christian elements. They're strongly opposed to calling themselves a church. They prefer to be known as the society of friends, and sometimes we call them the friendly persuasion. Their church buildings are not called churches. They like to say they're meeting houses. And their founder was George Fox. He, lived, he was an Englishman who lived in the 1600s. And he's the one who is uh, the cause, the leader of all this. He was very, a very disgruntled Christian. He lived in a sort of sad uh, era of England where they had civil wars a couple times. Just civil wars breaking out right in that country of England. That's politically. But what about religiously? Well, he would hear preachers, some of which were uh, Calvinists or whatever, but they would preach predestination. And he thought, oh, that is a slander on the name of God. And if you know about predestination, uh, you would probably say the same thing. So he started his own religion called the Quakers. And... uh, Here's a biography of uh, George Fox. Notice the subtitle here. George Fox, A Christian Mystic. That title is an illogical oxymoron. It's like calling someone a loyal traitor. this doesn't go together. You could be a Christian or you could be a mystic, but you can't be a, a Christian. You can't be a married bachelor either, can you guys? you're either married or you're a bachelor. Well, this is a positive biography by someone who is a Quaker himself, and he didn't see any contradiction in that, but he calls him a Christian mystic. Much more could be said, but I wanna focus, just for the lack of time, on just three Quaker beliefs and practices. Their uniform practice of the silence, their false worldviews of universalism and panentheism, and their setting aside God's written word in the Bible in favor of direct personal enlightenment i'll just give you one example of each for lack of time first they say about the silence they don't have any clergy or rituals their meetings for worship are often held in silence quaker communal worship consists of silent waiting with participants contributing as the spirit moves them they usually sit in a square Uh, facing each other or maybe a circle so they can see each other. And they just sit there and wait until they get a message from the spirits and then they might say something. But it says they sit there in silence for an hour. From time to time someone may speak briefly but sometimes the entire hour may uh, pass without a word being spoken. Uh, Yet they They find that to be their way of worship. Now, their false worldviews, pantheism is the pagan belief that all is God. Pan means all like a panoramic view. You can see it all when you reach the top of a mountain. Well, pantheism, all is God. Panentheism is its twin that says God is in everyone and everything. It's got an extra syllable. Universalism is the belief in universal salvation for all. Everybody's going to be saved. Now, those three, you just looked at them once, but here's a little quiz for you. Here's a statement. See if you can tell which of these worldviews is illustrated. Quakers believe that there is something of God in everybody. What do you think? Well, it's number two, because it's got in, Uh, the inner light. George Fox would teach that everybody has this inner light. That that's why we don't need the Bible. We don't need preachers. And they're setting aside the Bible. Faith is based solely on first-hand knowledge of Christ as a personal entity. Not on logic or reasoning or even scripture. This came to be called the Quaker way. The idea that worshipers need not consult preachers or the Bible to receive knowledge of the Holy Spirit. But now, this is the the main thing, folks. If you can show people how deadly dangerous this is, I think you can keep them from getting involved or maybe urge them to come out of it. Here's Ignatius Loyola. We said he wrote that book, Spiritual Exercises. Here's a quote about him. It's talking about how to meditate or contemplate, empty your mind and that. And I just want to look at this second sentence here, uh, starting with nothing. Nothing, again, can be more luminous, more profound, more practical than these indications given by Saint Ignatius for discerning the different spirits that act uh, on ours for the purpose of either saving or destroying us. That sounds strange. It's obvious then that first contemplative prayer is a dangerous and potentially deadly practice if he's talking about spirits that want to destroy us, and that's what the devils want. And it's also obvious that Loyola knew this 500 years ago, how dangerous it was, or he wouldn't have said that. And third, those who promote it today are also aware of that danger, and yet they continue to teach it. And we'll show you examples of their words where they admit that. But before dealing with the vulnerability of innocent believers being dangerously exposed to the direct influence of devils, I can't think of anything worse. Let me highlight one factor that we must not overlook, and that vital factor is that your voluntary consent is required here's catholic uh, monk thomas keating in one of his seminars and there was a lady and i mention her in my book her name is marcia montenegro and she had been deeply involved in the new age she wrote a daily astrology column she appeared on radio programs and so forth uh, talking about all the different falsehoods of the New Age. But the Lord led her out of that and made her a strong Christian. And one day she noticed that Thomas Keating was coming to visit her church. uh, It was at an Episcopal church in Virginia. And so she and her girlfriend went there, her acquaintance, not to be persuaded by him, But to listen to everything he said, even taking notes on it uh, and getting evidence of what falsehood this really is. But she says, she reports that Keating told students of his contemplative prayer sessions, we must consent to the present moment, whatever that means. This word, she says, consent, was used a lot. It was used often. And the reason this was an important and repeated part of Keating's lesson is that God gave all mankind the divine gift of free will. Every man and woman here is a free moral agent. For without free will and freedom of choice, mankind would be mere robots or puppets pulled by invisible strings. Yet some Christians won't listen to you They'll foolishly presume. They say, oh, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. The silence poses no spiritual danger. And if it did, God would protect us in it. You ever heard things like that? Supposedly the same as he protected Adam and Eve from their bad choice. He didn't do that, did he? It must have torn his heart out to see those first created beings go astray, but he allowed them to have free choice. Now as we proceed to examine the very real dangers of contemplative prayer, let's be comforted by the knowledge that we'll be safe as long as we never consent to take part in it, because it is a perilous exposure to demonic influence. In discussing the silence earlier, we saw how those supposedly praying are exposed to that mystical experience and trances and self-hypnotism. Now, those things are bad enough, but few people would subject themselves to such a loss of control if they knew what was involved. But a more serious threat is being exposed to the direct influence of evil spirits called demons and devils. Unless we think this is just a fictional horror story, the Apostle Paul writing under inspiration, soberly declares, he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Dr. Rodney Romney, he was the former uh, senior pastor of Seattle's First Baptist Church, must have been a large church there. He's now often quoted, though, as a New Age Christian. He's gone off on the other side new age but he's done a service to us because he very candidly revealed what was said to him in his contemplative prayer periods he said that the source of wisdom so-called that he was in contact with told him the following that spirit voice said i want you to teach this oneness to hold it up before the world as my call to unity and togetherness. That sounds so nice, unity and togetherness. And the Spirit says, in the end, this witness to the oneness of all people will determine or undermine any barriers that now exist. Now, could this be the voice of a demon? Because Jesus never talked like this. You can go through the whole Bible. And you'll hear different expressions, like Jesus spoke of the the sheep and the goats, the saved and the lost, the righteous and the wicked. There's always two sides. There are good angels and there are fallen angels and so forth. We're not one because we have the power of choice what side to pick. But the Spirit also told Dr. Romney uh, something else of vital importance. It declared, silence is that place, that environment where I work. Well, Christian writer Ray Youngen urges, he says, please pay attention to this. God does not work in the silence, but familiar spirits do. And one of the handouts uh, that I want you to take with you uh, talks about this point at more length. Also, what makes it so dangerous is that the spirits are very clever. One well-known New Ager revealed what his guiding or familiar spirit disclosed. He he said, we spirits work with all who are vibrationally sympathetic. That simply means everybody who is sympathetic to this and open to it uh, will work with anybody. But it added, it says, for the most part, only within the context of their current belief system. Did you get that, that last line? It's like a a fisherman who is uh, trying to catch a fish and bring it in. He won't pull on the line too prematurely, and then he'll lose the fish. He'll he'll wait until the fish really takes a bite, and the hook is firmly inserted, and then he'll pull him in. And they say that we never say anything. If, if you're an Adventist, we won't criticize Sister White. If you're a, a Jew, we won't talk about Jesus because that would turn you off. So once they got you, and you know you're supposed to do this 20 minutes a day, and 20, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the evening, and the people who do this will do it for years and get to this point where they can really pull you in. For one thing, another part of the danger is that it's a very pleasant uh, mind-body experience. The demons wanna be successful, so they make this whole thing as enticing and alluring as possible. Ken Keish is an Episcopal priest, but he's also a teacher of mystical prayer, and he says in this book that he wrote, there's the title, Finding God, a handbook of, notice he calls it, Christian. Meditation, but that is false advertising to sell the book. And here's what he says, though. You will gradually be able to tune into God's presence. You'll have a sense of deep, vibrant, deep energy surrounding you. Let yourself flow with this energy. It is the presence of the Lord. As you continue to dwell in this presence, the intensity will even grow. It is extremely pleasurable to experience. Well, virtually all who indulge in this mystic euphoria agree that this feeling, this experience is quite pleasurable, or some use other words like ecstasy even. People once hooked on an addiction, whether it's gambling or drugs or even mysticism, find that it grows on them. They like it more and more, and refuse even to listen to reasonable arguments about how they're hurting themselves. The demons, of course, understand all this, and they're glad that it works in their favor. Yet Richard Foster, the Quaker, Claims and wants us to believe that it leads to Christ and God, he says, you can actually encounter the living Christ in this event, be addressed by his voice and be touched by his healing power. Jesus Christ will actually come to you. Well, actually, this teaching is not true. You cannot call the real Jesus Christ from the right hand of the Father to appear to you, but Any demon will be happy to pretend to be Jesus. Now this point here is I think one of the strongest points when even practitioners of this and proponents of it admit its dangers. Let me share the insights of a former practitioner first of all. Pastor Rick Howard recently completed 33 years uh, as a minister of the gospel before he retired. And he's a an Adventist minister, uh, not just a Protestant one. How many of maybe have heard uh, Rick Howard? See, I see hands up all over. He wrote the first book that I read on uh, contemplative prayer when I was uh, researching it. But before his conversion to Christ, he spent five years in the supernatural arena of the New Age learning secrets of the occult and experiencing firsthand its mystical madness. He explains how even his mother and his sister would say, Rick, uh, I don't like this, what you're getting into. This sounds sort of dangerous and spooky. And he didn't listen to them at that time. But one night he was invited to a seance. And it was the only seance that he ever attended because it scared the wits out of him. After being chillingly frightened, During a science, a seance, he turned his back on all that. And the Lord led him into a close servant relationship with the king of kings. Amen amen to that. That's right. Well, his unique experiences in both the new age and Christianity provide an insider's view, which he shares in his book, The Omega Rebellion. Pastor Rick Howard uh, tells us that from ancient times, all the occult, and he read, during those five years, he read everything he could get his hands on to learn more. He says, they all have a common teaching that trained practitioners of meditative techniques can reach an altered state of consciousness that enables them to contact directly the world of the supernatural. And this teaching, far from being make-believe, it's no fairy tale is actually true. We can indeed really contact the supernatural, but remember, ever since Lucifer's rebellion up in heaven, the supernatural world has included both good and evil, both angels and demons, right? Those fallen angels once created to minister as messengers and worshiping spirits for God know how to sound spiritually positive. They know how to communicate God's truths and as well as that, Satan's lies. That's why God warns his people, beloved, believe not every spirit, because they're not all good ones. Pastor Rick Howard warns that the meditative practices that contact supernatural beings always focus on uh, involve a focusing of the mind to the exclusion of all else, a quieting and silencing of the mind. And when you enter this silence, you enter a place where evil angels can create any illusion they desire. And he gives some examples. A Hindu, he says, may think he sees a vision of his favorite guru levitating over the river Ganges. A spirit medium or channeler will believe he's contacted the spirit of a dead person when he's really communicating with a fallen angel, a demon, impersonating the one who passed away. Or a psychic mind reader attempts to read the mind of a subject. He's given a thought by the demon who gives the same thought to the one whose mind is supposedly being read. And when the psychic reveals the thought, it appears as he as if he had read the mind of the subject, when in reality the thought was injected into both their minds by a fallen angel. And then he closes with this example. Finally, he says, the modern day Christian, upon entering the silence, will believe that he has come into the direct presence of God. When really he's under the control of the same demonic powers as the psychic, spirit, mediums, and ancient mystics of the church. Anyone who relies on mystical experiences for contact with God. What we must realize is that we do not control the time when God communicates with us. He does. If we believe that God is at our beck and call 20 minutes every morning and so forth simply by entering an altered state through the use of prayer techniques, we deceive ourselves and commit the sin of presumption. Even more dangerous is the fact that we're communicating with demons and practicing spiritualism, which God, in order to protect us, condemns. I appreciate Pastor Howard's frank and helpful explanation. He's been there and done that. But not only practitioners like him recognize the lethal danger. Many promoters of contemplative prayer themselves also know its genuine uh, dangers. Let's see what Richard Foster says as a leader here. Remarkably enough, he gives this caution. He says, so that we may not be led astray, however, we must understand that we're not engaging in some flippant work. We're not calling on some cosmic bellhop. It is serious and even, he says, dangerous business. And the German Catholic monk, the master of Zen Buddhism, too, Williges Jager, he forthrightly admits, he says, St. Anthony, one of the first desert mystics, frequently encountered strange and sometimes terrifying psychophysical forces while at prayer. And in responses to these and other admissions about mystical prayer, uh, being dangerous business and terrifying people. Christian author Roger Oakland asks. he says, what is this, praying to the God of the Bible but instead reaching demons? Maybe contemplative prayer should be renamed contemplative terror, wouldn't you agree? The Desert Fathers lived as hermits and monks in the desert there. And they collected a lot of their sayings into a book. And you can read this one. One example says, a hermit said, take care to be silent. Empty your mind. Attend to your meditation in the fear of God. And if you do this, you will not fear the attacks of the demons. (laughs) You can also not fear them if you stay away from all that. Starting with the celebration of discipline that he wrote in 1978, at first he said this, he said, he urged us, we should all enroll without shame in the school of contemplative prayer. But then in a later book, in 1992, he offers words of warning and precaution that this is a very dangerous prayer method That can invoke demonic activity and require special protection. Here are his own words. He says, At the outset, I need to give a word of warning. Contemplative prayer is not for the novice, not for the beginner. I don't say this about any other form of prayer. I guess not. Most prayer is pretty safe. Contemplative prayer is for those who have exercised their spiritual muscles. In fact, those who work in the area of spiritual direction always look for signs of a maturing faith before encouraging individuals into contemplative prayer. And he goes still further. He says, I also want to give a word of precaution. There is such a thing as supernatural guidance that is not divine science. There are various orders of spiritual beings, and some of them are definitely not in cooperation with God and his way. But for now, he says, I want to encourage you to learn and practice prayers of protection. And he gives an example. For instance, you could say, all dark and evil spirits must now leave. And you know the devil will mind you, right? They didn't mind God up in heaven. That's why they were kicked out. But they'll mind you if you just follow Richard Foster's advice here and give this prayer. So let's keep two things in mind. First, it's the height of presumption to pray, God, I've decided to go now into the dark silence where the evil spirits are waiting, where you've warned me not to go, but please protect me and keep me safe. That's presumption. And the second thing is, nowhere in the Bible are we told to pray a prayer of protection before we pray, right? I need to say a word about the awful alpha of mind control. Alpha is a term that scientists use, uh, neuroscientists. They can put uh, electrodes on your skull and uh, measure your brain waves. Because your brain gives off electrical impulses, and they have about four different frequencies that they have uh, identified. And they give those names uh, there. The second one is alpha. The first is beta, and then theta, and delta. Uh, this is something that tries to promote this. They, there's the Hindu uh, symbol at the top there. But I just want you to know that the word itself isn't necessarily bad. Uh, it's a scientific term. But the people involved in the occult, like witches and so forth, have known about this and use it in their uh, very terrible work. Mike Pershan, he's a freelance writer for Youth Specialties, he wrote how he first explored mysticism, and he gives an example of what we're talking about here. He says, I started using the phrase listening prayer when I talked about my own experiences in meditation. I built myself a prayer room, a tiny sanctuary in a basement closet filled with books on spiritual disciplines, contemplative prayer and Christian mysticism. He says, in that space, I lit candles, burned incense, hung rosaries, and listened to tapes of Benedictine monks. I meditated for hours on words, images, and sounds. I reached the point of being able to achieve alpha brain patterns, the state in which dreams occur, while still awake and meditating. Now, Christian writer Ray Youngen reacts to those words we just read. He says, when I hear a Christian talking like this, it creates a very deep concern for me, within me, for that person, because I know what is meant by Alpha. And he gives us uh, the dope on this. from Here's a, a book written by a witch. It's called The Power of the Witch, and it's written by a real professional witch named Laurie Cabot. Uh, She's appeared on TV for interviews, on the radio, and uh, she's written this book. She's not bashful about uh, telling all about it. Youngin tells us that throughout Laurie Cabot's book, The Power of the Witch, alpha is a term she uses to mean meditation or the silence. In fact, she makes no secret of it, but testifies that The science of witchcraft is based on our ability to enter an altered state of consciousness we call alpha. In alpha, the mind opens up to non-ordinary forms of communication such as telepathy, clairvoyance, and precognition. Here we may also receive mystical visionary information that does not come through the five senses in alpha, The rational filters that process ordinary reality are weakened or removed, and the mind is receptive to non-ordinary realities. And Jungin says the absolute importance of this practice is made clear throughout Cabot's book. Without it, there is no real power. She explains, alpha is the springboard for all psychic and magical workings. It is the heart of witchcraft you must master it first before proceeding to any other spell ritual or exercise in this book so those people that tell you you know is this really Christian they say absolutely is it biblical certainly it is and now we find that it's the heart of witchcraft from one who knows She goes on, mystics in every religious tradition speak of alpha states of consciousness and the lore of divine light, though they do it in their own terms and terminology. In their own ways, they've learned how to enter alpha as they pray or worship. They've learned how to become enlightened, but I put the word supposedly there. They're not really enlightened. But now one of the last things I need to talk about are these false and fatal worldviews. Richard Foster writes that the testimony by faithful believers throughout centuries is amazingly uniform regarding mysticism. Well, that's the problem. Contemplative authors are amazingly uniform because listening to spirit voices in the silence of contemplative prayer has converted them all uniformly to a non-Christian worldview. The mystical spirit voices teach four false worldviews, universalism, monism, pantheism, and panentheism. Let's explain each of these one by one. Universalism involves universal salvation for all mankind, regardless of what you believe or what you do, you're all going to go to heaven. Monism believes all is one, With no distinction at all between creator and creation. All reality is one. Therefore, if all is one, then all is God. Even man and Satan. You can guess who made that one up. A third one, pantheism, believes that all is God. Very similar to monism. Therefore, a tree is God, a rock is God, and man is God. And finally, panentheism's got an extra syllable there. It's almost a twin to pantheism with a slight difference. Pantheism says all is God. Panentheism says God is in all things. Now, as I share examples of these four false beliefs, please note, please note two things about them. First, they're not exclusive from each other. As a teacher, I wish I could give you just clear examples that are uh, very clear on this and very clear on the next, but I can't because the people that I quote from mix them up themselves in their own words and I guess in their own mind. So you'll see that there's more than one in a single statement. And the second thing is that these are very contagious and inevitable. Just about everyone I've uh, quoted to you, Merton, Foster, uh, Keating, and others, and many others, they all, sooner or later, have their Christian worldview taken away, and they adopt one of these others they're infected with. Henri Nouwen, for example, teaches monism twice. When he writes prayer work, prayer is soul work, because our souls are those sacred centers where all is one. It is in the heart of God that we can can come to the full realization of the unity of all that is. Both of those are monism. But he also teaches both panentheism and universalism. He says the God who dwells in our inner sanctuary is also the God who dwells in the inner sanctuary of each human being. Now it's panentheism, he says in twice, and it's universalism, because at the end, he doesn't say of each Christian believer, he says of each human being, anybody, doesn't matter what you believe, you can be an atheist, and God still dwells in there. Now one tragic but typical and true story may be enough to show how contemplative prayer changes one's worldview 180 degrees from that of a Sunday school teacher to that of a New Age goddess worshiper who hates the Bible. Writer Sue Monk Kidd started out as a good Christian, but mysticism changed her. Let's look at that once more. She started out nice, and she certainly did change. Years ago, uh, she was a popular author. She was an active member in her Baptist church. And then, suffering for some reason, I don't know, a deep hollowness and spiritual hunger, she underwent a transformation of belief when, ironically enough, a Sunday school co-worker handed her a book by Thomas Merton and said, you, boy, you've got to read this book. And her life changed dramatically as she read numerous contemplative prayer books and repeated her sacred word mantras just as her reading taught. In time, she came to the mystical conclusion of monism, all is one, and panentheism, God is in all. She says, and these are her words, I'm speaking of recognizing the hidden, that is the occult truth, that we are one with all people. We are part of them and they are part of us. When we encounter another person, we should walk as if we were on holy ground. We should respond as if God dwells there. Among kid's panentheism is easily apparent when she advises that the Hindu greeting, namaste, that's Sanskrit, offered with a reverential bow, and which translates, I honor the God in you. She says, that should be used by Christians Well, she wrote her first and second book from a Christian perspective, but with her third and fourth book, she made a sharp turn to a spiritual view more in tune with the witchcraft of Wicca than with Christianity. And now, as a pantheist, she worships the goddess Sophia and nature rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is her third book. It's called The Dance of the Dissident Daughter. The word dissident means one who disagrees or a dissenter. And the subtitle, if you can read that small print, it's called, A Woman's Journey from Christian Tradition to the Sacred Feminine. The Christian writer and researcher, Ray Youngen, shares a bit of her thinking when he says, no one can lightly dismiss or ignore the powers behind contemplative prayer after reading this narrative. That kid wrote in that book, The Dance of the Dissident Daughter. Here's her brief story in three paragraphs. She says the minister was preaching. He was holding up a Bible. He was saying that the Bible is the sole and ultimate authority of the Christian's life. The sole and ultimate authority? she questions. I remember, she says, a feeling rising up. It was a passionate, determined feeling, and it spread out from the core of me like a current that my skin vibrated with it. If feelings could be translated into English, this feeling would have roughly been the word no. We're going to be uh, finished in just a moment, but are these people who are leaving getting uh, these packages or anything? Good, thank you. Yes. She says uh, they would be translated into the word no. And she concludes by saying it was the purest inner knowing I had experienced. And it was shouting in me no, no, no. The ultimate authority in my life is not the Bible. It is not confined between the covers of a book. It is not something written by men and frozen in time. It is not from a source outside myself. My ultimate authority is the divine voice in my own soul, period. Location, location, location is the obvious uh, important thing in business sometimes, just as truth is in religion. But the teachers of mystical prayer by following the father of lies and teaching panentheism have fallen short on both counts because they've not told us the truth about the location of God. They tell us that he's inside us. And here are three little quotes from Ellen White. She's talking about the book that Dr. John Harvey Kellogg wrote around 1900 called The Living Temple and she says the book Living temple is unsound. It introduces speculation in regard to the personality of God and where his presence is. That's his location. It's not true what they say. We need not the mysticism that is in this book. Those who entertain these false ideas will soon find themselves in a position, notice what she says, where the enemy can talk with them and lead them away from God. The sentiments advocated in the book were a snare that the enemy had prepared for when? Are those the days we're living in now? And this is when it's becoming so popular, unfortunately. But praise the Lord that Jesus, the master teacher, taught us to pray to God in heaven, not to God inside of us. He said, after this manner, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right there in the very opening of his model prayer, Jesus put us on the right track. So though the Bible offers no support for this false worldview of panentheism, that doesn't stop its promoters. Regardless of what God says in his word, panentheism, the fiction that the great God of the universe resides within us, and that therefore we are God, that's the very bedrock of the new age and the contemplative prayer movements. Let's see just a few examples of these. Richard Foster, besides giving his own ideas, he quotes from other far-out mystics, like this man. He says, to pray is to descend with the mind into the heart, and there to stand before the face of the Lord, ever-present, all-seeing, within you. And then he quotes uh, Madame Guillaume, she was a French Catholic who devoted her life to the silence of contemplative prayer and to mysticism, with the resulting views of pantheism and panentheism. Notice this confession of her faith. She says, Here in the contemplative state, everything is God. God is everywhere and in all things. So when she says everything is God, that is pantheism. When she says, God is in all things. That's panentheism. So, who is the notorious author of these false worldviews? Remember that Lucifer's highest ambition was in Isaiah 14 when he said, I will be like the Most High. And these false worldviews do logically put all created beings, including mankind and devils, because they're all created in the same class as God. I'm closing with a divine prediction that uh, came true. You know, often we don't fully grasp the essence of a divine prediction until we actually see it fulfilled. An example of this is in Matthew 24, when the disciples asked Jesus, they said, Lord, uh, what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And right in verse 5, this is what Jesus says. He says, Many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and will deceive many. Now, Christian Ray Youngen, I've quoted him before from another book, but his first book was entitled, Many Shall Come in My Name. And he points out that the Greek word for many, in Christ's answer, is polis, which means a very great number. It could actually mean that millions upon millions of people are going to claim deity for themselves. He explains further that in the remainder of that same verse he tells us that the many will specifically and actually say I am Christ. Now I've read that verse many times I'm sure you have too and I believed it but I always thought that it referred to referred to a few misled folks like Shirley MacLaine, or Jim Jones, or uh, David Koresh, and so forth. They all boldly and blasphemously claim to be God, or Christ, but there are only a few. And still, even though Jesus had said many when he said polis, I thought I must accept those few as a fulfillment of that prophecy, but now, with thousands upon misled thousands consenting to go into the silence, consenting to empty the only mind God ever gave them, consenting to listen to spirit voices whispering false worldviews that deceive, Satan is gaining countless converts to his New Age theology. Here are some unbelievable examples, they say the Christ is you, you are the one who is to come. Each of you, each and every one of you. Another person says, Christhood is not something to come at a point in the future when you are more evolved. Christhood is right now, I am the Christ of God. You are the Christ of God. Can you believe that people would say such a thing? But Christ predicted it as one of the signs. Thomas Merton had a severe case of pantheism, and he had it bad. In witness of that, he left this testimony. He says, if only they, the people, could see themselves as they really are. I suppose the big problem would be that we'd all fall down and worship each other. (laughs) At the center of our being is the pure glory of God in us. It is in everybody. And here's our last quote from these people. Henri Nouwen suffered from universalism. In his final book, he confessed his faith. Not so much faith in Jesus, but in his adopted philosophy of universalism. He said, today, I personally believe that while Jesus came to open the door to God's house, all human beings can walk through that door whether they know about jesus or not today i see it as my call to help every person claim his or her own way to god everyone has his own way to do it they're all going to go to heaven so is contemplative prayer biblical is it christian well it's much too mystical to be biblical folks and it's much more hindu and buddhist and new age than christian now having examined the facts we can only conclude that spiritual formation with its mystical silence of contemplative prayer in the emerging church is a modern day trojan horse quietly smuggled into christianity by the devil himself and we don't want any part of it amen amen In closing, our loving God tells us exactly what to do in just a few words quoted here from the pen of Paul. He says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. I thank you for your attention, folks. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI. Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.